listening to On the NBA Beat on Almighty Baller Radio, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thank you for tuning in to On the NBA Beat on the Almighty Baller Network, brought to you by Dash Radio. I'm your host, Lauren Lee Chen, here with my co-host, Aaron Fishman. Sadly, our third host, Joshua Fishman, couldn't join us for this episode, but we'll just have to make do without him. If you're new to the show, we're a weekly program that brings on experts from around the league and picks their brain about particular teams and topics. In our first segment today, we've brought on friend of the show, Dane Carbaugh, to talk about the Portland Trailblazers, currently going up against the Golden State Warriors in the first round of the playoffs. Dane is a writer for Pro Basketball Talk on NBCSports.com and also has a video series on his YouTube channel, Dane Not Dan where he breaks down common sets and actions that you might see teams running. I really implore you to check that out if you're interested in the X's and O's of basketball. Without further ado, here he is. Dane, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. No problem. I want to start off this interview by asking about Yusuf Nurkic, whom the Blazers acquired at the trade deadline from the Denver Nuggets. His exceptional play after joining the Blazers really buoyed the team into playoff contention, but he went down with a leg fracture at the end of March and has been out since. First, do you have any updates on his availability for the rest of this first round series? And also, what do you think brought about this career awakening for him after escaping from under the shadow of Nikola Jokic on the Nuggets? Well, in terms of his outlook for playing, that's really hard to say. I think the team has been, they've teased a little bit, which they wouldn't put on their social media, him uh, going through light workouts with the training staff or stretching, that kind of stuff. Um, obviously, game three, Portland's best chance to win a game is game three back at the Moda. Uh, it seems like that might be a time for him to come back to maybe, if anything, just as a little thank you to the fans or or you know some something to get them excited for next season. Although I've maintained that I think that he probably shouldn't play. I don't see a reason for him to play. The Blazers are not going to win the series. They already had their boost through Nurkic. They already know that he's a guy they're going to keep. And if I'm new O'Shea, you know, O'Shea has sort of been this golden boy in terms of some of the moves he's made. You know, he traded Jeff Withy for uh, Robin Lopez. He, uh, you know, recites CJ. He's done a lot of things that are good. And now he's traded for Yusuf Nurkic. But I think he finally had a little bit of a, a crack in the foundation a little bit when he um, re-signed and potentially put these players or put the team into a potential luxury tax situation when he re-signed Evan Turner and Alan Crabb to those contracts. Now, Crabb is obviously a player meant to be traded, but Turner hasn't performed at the level that he was meant to be performing at. And so the Nurkic trade, I think, really re-solidified his position. Same thing for Terry Stotts. So nobody's going into this playoff series thinking we need to win a series or win a game even to save someone's job. No one's going to get fired because of that. And on the flip side, you have the guy that I think is going to, they believe, and I think is going to be the the third guy for this team for years to come. And so I don't see a reason to risk him in any way, shape, or form. I mean, he's got a non-displaced fracture in his in his leg, and he's a you know seven foot tall, two hundred eighty pound man. And it's the Portland Trailblazers. Maybe just let him rest. So it's possible he comes back for Game Three. If he does, 
come back at all. That is the game he's going to do it in. There's no reason if they're down 3-0 and there's no reason for him to play in game four. So it would have to be in game three. I don't think he should come back at all. So in terms of his his emergence, I think we saw him have a very good rookie season in Denver, a second season that was marred by injury, and a third season that was really outshined by uh, Jokic coming out and being a player that is obviously going to be foundational for Denver. And they really just didn't they didn't work well together on the floor. That was they kind of gummed up each other's works. And so I think that if you had a, a good rookie season, nobody, no young player coming into it who thinks that he's good and is rightfully so knows that he's good is going to be happy with a guy <laughs> coming in and and taking the place that you thought you were going to occupy. So I think his reaction to it, reports of him being sort of sullen, and uh, you know the guy's like twenty one or twenty two. Uh, maybe it's something having to do with that. Maybe it's having to do with being a young athlete who's probably always been the top guy somewhere, has always been treated as the top guy somewhere, and maybe this is his first bit of adversity when it comes to basketball and didn't handle it well because he's a young dude. We all remember what it was like to be 22, I guess, and be kind of goofy. So I think that may be uh, part of it. And so I think now in Portland, he has a, a really supportive group of guys around him. He's played well. He's in a system, I think, that fits him very well in terms of being a uh, a good mid-range shooter, a good high-post passer, uh, and and being able to uh, mix in. The Blazers do have a lot of post-up plays left over from the LaMarcus Aldridge sets, so he fits in really well. So I think it makes sense that he's doing so well in Portland. We'll definitely return to some of the roster construction issues and Olshay evaluation that you brought up earlier on in your answer. But for now... If Nurkic is out for at least game three, it seems like the Blazers are in bad need of a third scorer on their team, judging by their performance in games one and two. Who do you think can be that option for the team? Or do you think it's possible for a third scorer by committee, at least? I mean, the most likely person to take that spot in bunches in a playoff matchup, I guess, against the Warriors is likely to be Alan Crabb. Unfortunately, you know, the last game in game two against the Warriors, they, <laughs> Mo Harkless was the top scorer, which is that's sort of, I think, long term, hopefully would be the, the Blazers, well, fourth option once Nurkic is back, but, uh, would be the third option. But I think he's, he's just being concentrated on a little bit. And also they sort of defensively planned to, to leave him alone a little bit in some shooting situations. So Alan Crabb would make the most sense. I don't know if there's a, a way for them to really have a third score in this series, to be perfectly honest. I think it's it's all going to have to be benefited off of uh, Damian CJ scoring you know, a million points like they did in the first game. And obviously, they didn't do very well in game two. Yeah, talking about that. So in Wednesday night's game two, that dynamic duo combined for just 23 points on nine of 34 shooting. Not good, obviously. Was, in your opinion, do you think that was a combination of them just going cold from outside and the Warriors keying in on them better and adjusting? What do you think went into their struggles? I think the Warriors were always going to do this, I think, in Game 2. That was my prediction, actually, on Wednesday uh, in my own podcast with a, with a buddy. Just because you had CJ go off for 40-plus, you had Damien have an exceptional game in Game 1, and the Warriors were always going to look at game tape. That's what happens in playoff series, right? You know, the players look at game tape and that you have the back and forth, which is why we get so many, you know, six and seven game series between good teams. So obviously the Warriors, one of the top defensive teams in the NBA, 
And the Trailblazers, for as effective as they are on offense, are not a very dynamic team on offense. They have two scores, and then with the addition of Nurkic, that really has helped them. But without him, obviously, <laughs> they they don't have a, a, a lot to uh, concentrate on, except for, you know, we saw last year in the playoffs, teams blitzed Damian and CJ really hard off the pick and roll, got the ball out of their hands, uh, forced other guys to make plays, forced other guys to make turnovers, or simply ran down the shot clock by getting the ball out of their hands. So, you know, Damien shot 0 of 4 from three-point range. Uh, CJ McCollum was 1 of 3 from three-point range. Obviously, they, they did a good job of locking down on them. And to be perfectly honest, like, I think what they really did was they figured out what points on the floor Damien and CJ were attacking to and where on their drives. I saw a lot more drives that were ineffective as opposed to the first game in which both Damien and CJ had the ability to hit floaters or runners from certain points of the floor where they were very clearly trying to avoid some of the shot blocking that, say, JaVale McGee brings to it or uh, Draymond Green brings to the floor for the Warriors. And I think they really adjusted that and saw, look, like this is where a lot of their shots came from on the floor when they had those drives. This is where we're going to try to concentrate. This is where we're going to try to make them take an extra dribble or take a dribble away from those drives so they can't get to that specific spot and make them uncomfortable. And I think combined with locking down them from three-point land, I think that's that's really what happened to them. Yeah, their performance, those two guys combined in game two, is not going to cut it. And what they did in game one might not either. Those two combined for nearly 69% of Portland's points in the series opener. And the only two other guys to score more than three points were Mo Harkless and Evan Turner. In your mind, is that just a combination? Just how large of an output those two guys can contribute to the team both really impressive and really concerning yeah i would say that's that's accurate i think fans in portland love damien and cj but even with nurkic i hope i think that obviously the the front office in portland they do believe long term they need another guy and so i think there is obviously a trade to be made with three first round picks this year grab played a lot better after damien went out with an injury about midway through the year helped reboost his trade value and a couple other guys on the, on the roster that you could swap out and make a trade for another i th- i think they would i would prefer them go for a wing i think that's a, probably an easier spot to find somebody to help be a scorer but i don't know really what they want to do or what's going to be out there for them but i think it's great that they can score you know all those points and that helps the blazers especially in the second half of this year when they didn't struggle so bad that really helped them you know they they found that uh, damien in particular really found a second gear i'd say the last third of the season and maybe it's just that he he was healthy he was having some foot problems but it's also obviously against the warriors a huge weakness and i think for smart basketball fans in portland that has never been a secret you can't just have those two guys at those two positions especially with the the size that they are and the the liability they create both on on defense, and also, you know, they're giving up a lot of size from the guard position in this series. Mm-hmm. So that maybe is to their disadvantage when teams are keying on them and have excellent, large, long defenders like the Warriors have. So I think it's it's a positive uh, in the regular season, but come playoff time, it's a concern. When we talked to you in February of 2016, you mentioned that the uh, Blazers are led by the guy with the biggest chip on his shoulder ever, and... <laughs> It's true. I mean, this guy gets disrespected or overlooked again and again, and he seems to thrive under using that as fuel. This was the second consecutive season that he wasn't named as an all-star. He's felt disrespected by Team USA in the past and has yet to participate. 
now he's playing this series in his hometown and it's of course a rematch with the Warriors from last season then to add on top of that if he needed any extra motivation and you really don't when you're in a big time playoff series at this level there's just so much trash talking that Draymond Green is doing and and Lillard has commented on how that's implored him to do it right back even though it's not really in his nature to do that normally. Just expound upon that a little bit, how that just drives this guy so much. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like basketball players are interesting, especially when they have that mentality, because a lot of them, they take things to extremes. And I think you would probably expect that from a lot of players who need to have some motivation. I think Damian Lillard is, is he disrespected in the sense that he is, Missed the all-star game and uh, probably should have been an all-star and maybe gets overshadowed by guys in bigger markets or back on the East Coast or because they play with better teammates or play in a weaker conference. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I mean, we had to do our votes for for everything, you know, for middle of the season, all-star, and then also, you know, here at the closing of the season. So sitting down with how there are so many good players in the NBA, especially when it has to be divided up by position. You try to pick your first, second, and third team like we did for you know, pro basketball talk. It's really hard. You end up like forgetting about whole play. Oh my God. Like I forgot to put Isaiah on my first, third, and second. And I was like, oh no. Like, like, so I had to like go back and edit it. And you know, like my, my colleague Dan was like, oh, like you realize you didn't put Isaiah on. I was like, oh my God. Like, of course, like I forgot somebody. It's like, it's so hard because it's positional. So sure. Yeah. You, you end up, some guys miss out. I think that's absolutely true. But on the flip side, Damian Lillard has a lot of national respect, and this is an NBA league pass league. So from a national media perspective, the guys calling the games on ESPN know who Damian Lillard is. The guys on the TNT broadcast at halftime know who Damian Lillard is. They talk about him. They watch him. Some of those guys, you know, they they live in LA, so they're just watching him on West Coast time. Damian Lillard has a $100 million shoe contract. He has a $120 million player contract. He's a rapper who's a charted in iTunes when he dropped his, his album. Like he's got a lot of things going for him. So mm-hmm. in terms of, is it realistic for him to have that big a chip on his shoulder? Probably not, but it's also <laughs> great for him to use that as motivation for what he feels as a slight amplify it and then use it as motivation to be able to play at the level he does, especially when he's on, he's one of the most exciting players in the NBA. And obviously <laughs> I watch too much NBA as it is. So he really is just like super exciting. So his chip on his shoulder, I don't think necessarily is realistic, but I don't, I don't really care. And it, it comes in context of, of the whole ridiculous nature of the NBA, all-star voting giant contracts. So it, it gets a little weird, but uh, I think it certainly, it certainly helps him. And it's good for Portland Trailblazers fans. I like what you said at the end about it not being realistic, how big the chip is, because that doesn't really matter, it is however irrational it is. And I know there's there's obviously, as you said, some reason behind it, but if it works, it works. And it seems to be a winning formula for Lillard so far. So hopefully as the accolades start rolling in more, he just keeps that chip on his shoulder. Hopefully it gets even bigger, even though it does that doesn't really make sense, but... There is a narrative around this team, and we talked about this too on your last appearance, that the core of Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum has a ceiling. There is this article that Jason Quick wrote on Comcast Sportsnet Northwest a couple months ago where he boiled it down to two sub-questions. The first one I don't really see as that big of an issue. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Just the whole thing that... 
is raised with really any team that has a couple of superstars about ego and for superstar guards needing the ball in their hands. To me, that's not much of a concern. But the second one is their combined defensive deficiencies, which you briefly alluded to earlier. Just address both of those elements if you can, how big of a deal either or both of those are. Well, I think the first one in terms of ego or having the balls in their hand or however those two things sort of how that Venn diagram, those circles overlap each other. Uh, it is an interesting dynamic. I don't know that I see it as friction yet in Portland. Damien is the clear alpha of the team. Nobody is in question of that. That's not to say CJ McCollum is soft. He's certainly talking trash to Draymond Green and stuff. I mean, not in any way, shape or form, but Damien owns the team. So that That is the guy, and nobody's going to question that. He's the unquestioned leader. He leads the players-only workouts in San Diego every year. He's the guy. So in terms of their actual play on the court with the ball, I think that the main way that I've looked at it, especially with Damian really struggling with, he had plantar fasciitis early in the year and he just didn't have this kind of explosiveness. So he had plantar fasciitis at the end of last year, and he came into this year, I think still maybe not being 100% as somebody who has plantar fasciitis myself. I can tell you that it's uh, completely annoying and uh uh, it does take some time to get over. Um, yeah, I've had that too. Not fun. Yeah, it's the worst. Uh, so I think that really seeing CJ being able to be, I mean, honestly, the best player for a significant portion of the games this year for the Trailblazers, win or lose, it shows you that not necessarily I've seen it a little bit more as a benefit. So you say, look, they wouldn't have won this game or they wouldn't have been in this game if they didn't have CJ. So they need, they need to have that, that second guy. Now, looking at the playoffs and when they're both fully healthy, I think, you know, the Blazers closed out the year really strong. And I think because CJ got more time with the ball and knew when to pick his spots, I think there is a little bit of deferral there. And so I think CJ in the playoffs to me so far, has looked as though he has been told very specifically or has taken as his mantra to put the ball in the hole because nobody else for the Blazers team is going to do that. And the only way to beat the Warriors is to outscore them in this series. That's the only, that's the only potential weapon the Trailblazers have. So CJ's looked more confident to me in the playoffs. I, I really liked it. And that's saying coming after him having, I think, a, a very good year. So I don't necessarily see them as in any kind of, uh, and I don't see a lot of friction there. So the second part of it, it's hard to say. I've said this for a little while. There was obviously a lot of chatter this this season and last season about trading CJ for DeMarcus Cousins or something, or or this year, even as, as CJ played well and Damian looked a little not, not quite himself, there was a lot of talk about trading Damian for somebody like DeMarcus Cousins. So I think that if the Blazers make him, and I've said this over and over and over again, and I don't see any reason to change from it now. If the Blazers need to do something else, that trade is not coming until summer of 2018. They have to go through an entire season together with a fully built roster that they think is ready to compete with a center, a starting center that works for them. And that would be Yusuf Nurkic, Aminu with the four, Moharkless at the three. They have to go through a whole season with an actually complete roster with, honestly, guys defensively who can back them up. Remember, this is a team that played with, I mean, CJ was on the team with Damian when they had Nick Batum, Wes Matthews, and Robin Lopez, three players that really, from different positions, helped eliminate some of the deficiencies for those guys. So when it comes to defense, defense is inherently a team thing. 
right? It's hard to look at a, a player's individual defensive rating. We all know that now in 2017 because that's entirely dependent on five men on the floor. If you look at the Blazers and what those guys are doing, yeah, they're not good defensive players. Like if you just watch, you know, we're at game 85 or something or whatever we're at, like, yeah, they're not good defensive players. That's that's fine. Or they're they're okay at times. But I don't necessarily think that you can say because of how everything else works in the NBA, free agency and the availability of talent and when they're available and issues between players and teams and all that kind of stuff, you have to build the best team you have. Uh, Stan Van Gundy went off about that like two summers ago or something, you know, yelling at people or sort of making fun of analysts saying like, oh, like you guys are always talking about value for contract. And it's like, look, at some at some point in time, we need a guy to score. We need a guy to rebound and, and the cost, <laughs> the cost, you know, value analysis. Like it's not always the thing you want, but like it doesn't work out perfectly. And I think that's absolutely true. So you look at the Blazers and those guys are not great on defense, but they need to have they need to have other guys that can essentially back them up and cover for them. So they need to have a full other season of that. They had to get through this season, figure out what they were doing with they're gonna have to trade grab and somebody else, like they get their real roster together, play a whole other year with it. And even then, if they win fifty games next year, I'm not sure that they make a trade with CJ either. Like, I, I think they still stick with them. I think we're, we might still be a couple of years out from seeing whether or not this strategy, the having two elite scoring guards of the NBA that can't really play defense, works if the rest of the roster around them is good enough to cover defensive uh, inequities. So that's really what the Blazers are doing. So we still have time on that. CJ and Dame are both signed to max contracts with the Blazers through 2021. So both seem like they'll be on the roster for a long time. We'll return to the contract situation later on. But first, I want to talk more about this first round series with the Golden State Warriors. I want to first give you credit. When we had you on in February of last season, you made what was at the time a pretty bold prediction that if the Blazers met the Clippers in the playoffs, the Blazers had at least a decent chance of winning that series. As we all know, that did come true. The Blazers beat the Clippers in the first round of the 2016 playoffs. Granted, the Clippers did lose Chris Paul and Blake Griffin both to injury during that series, but I wanted to give you credit there. In the second round, they faced the Golden State Warriors, albeit without Durant on the roster. Do you think last year's playoff experience helped prep this young team in any small way for facing Kerr's team again? Yeah, I think so. A little bit. I mean, mostly I think the thing that we came out of the last year's playoffs with in Portland was how good Mo Harkless is. That was a big thing, I think, for the team's long-term planning. He's now on a great, you know, like a $10 million a year contract for four years. That's excellent value for him, I think. And it also, I think, taught the Blazers a little bit more about what they could do positionally with Alfred Camino playing the four. Mentally, you know, I couldn't couldn't specifically say. I would assume that – and I think I almost see a parallel with this. With uh, There's a lot of talk about you know, Brad Stevens and uh, the Celtics, what's going on with the Bulls and stuff right now. You know, Brad Stevens is uh, 40 years old. He's been an NBA head coach for three years, but wasn't an NBA assistant coach for before that. People are comparing him saying – Oh, yeah, that, that ESPN ranking put him above guys like Rick Carlisle. Rick Carlisle is, you know, a much better coach than Brad Stevens. It's like true. And Rick Carlisle was a head coach when he was 42 years old. But when he was a head coach at 42 years old in Detroit, he had been an NBA assistant coach for a decade. So he'd had all this experience specifically with the NBA to know how to do things better. 
And of course, now Rick Carlisle is 57. He's 17 years older than Brad Stevens. Of course, Rick Carlisle has more experience and is probably a better coach than Brad Stevens because Brad Stevens is extremely young. And I think that's what happened with the Blazers last year is they got their first taste of, especially as new, as this new roster is constructed, not having, you know, people kind of maybe don't know this outside of Portland, but that old team with Robin Lopez is Nick Batum and Lamarcus Aldridge. Lamarcus Aldridge was, the the top guy. But the second guy, the guy who owned that locker room was Wes Matthews, not Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard was third, for sure, hands down. So who's leading this team? Who has experience? Who's going to speak up when? All of those things changed greatly by multiple factors when you didn't have, I mean, LaMarcus spoke up very much, but he tried to be more assertive in his later years in Portland. But, you know, it's LaMarcus first and West second, then Damian third, you know? So it's like, of course, that shifted as Damian, you know, the, maybe the last year in Portland, Damian was, maybe Damian was two or tied with West. I don't know, I don't know. And I think that's, those types of things had to change in this locker room. Uh, clearly, Damian is the top guy, but who speaks up and when? Like, who's, who's the number two guy? Probably CJ. Who's the number two guy? When does he speak up? How does he speak up? Is he the is he the fire guy and who's who's the fun guy? You know, who's the good cop? Who's the bad cop? Who's talking to who when? Who has issues with who? So I think that all of that kind of stuff has to change when it comes to the playoffs. And that's how you get through a seven game series with an extremely, you know, everybody in the playoffs for the most part, especially in the West, every team is a, a, a pretty good team. So you're not going to have unless you are the Warriors and it's likely that you're going to smoke people maybe through the first two rounds or something. If you're in the next tier down, you're going to have some difficulty. So I think the Trailblazers have a little bit more experience after last year, winning a playoff series, knowing how to get through it together as a team, and getting through it with a a roster that had a lot of the same guys in the same roles, interacting with each other in the same way, uh, you know, as they travel through the playoffs. And so that's the thing I'd probably say they'd probably come through it with. And and now, you know, I don't know how much they'll come out of this series with, especially if it's a sweep, but. I, you know, more experience can't hurt. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, you look at this young team and you see that they've outperformed expectations two years in a row. Now they've made the playoff both years where I don't think a lot of people pick them to do so in either year, especially so soon after dealing away or losing former franchise cornerstones in LaMarcus Aldridge and, and Nick Batum, as you said, but on the other hand, we return to they have the second highest payroll in the league, which people might not know if you're not paying attention to Portland that closely. They have already 137 million committed for next season, even 116 million committed for 2020, which is over 30 million more than any other team in the NBA right now. So my question, I guess, is how we should evaluate the job that Neil O'Shea has done up to this point because nationally I think he's been lauded for quite some time for building this roster and putting it in a position to succeed and them being ahead of schedule but then again I think there is a dichotomy with some people in Portland really seeing him as having handcuffed this team to their current state. Hmm. I don't necessarily see him as having handcuffed the team. I think as soon as he matched Alan Crabb because he, we already knew he was in pursuit of Chandler Parsons. When they lost it on that, they moved on to Evan Turner. So we already knew they were trying to add a player that would be, you know, their third highest paid player on the wing. We already knew that was going to happen. So when he matched Alan Crabb, it was like, okay, well, he's doing what you do in the NBA. You typically, unless you, unless you get 
you know, you get, like the Blazers gave the poison match offer to, uh, you know, they gave it to Wesley, they gave it to Paul Millsap, you know, unless you're trying to do that to sort of specifically force a decision from a team at a certain time, you know, a lot of times the move is to just match. So that's what the Blazers did, and they they thought Alan Crabb got properly evaluated. Remember, Alan Crabb is still a relatively young guy. His main skill is three-point shooting. That's obviously useful in the NBA and obviously useful for a lot of uh, teams that he can be traded to. So as soon as they matched him, I was I knew right away, that's a trade. H- hands down, that's a trade coming. Uh, not even hard to see that. So I, I take that $75 million right off the books. I'm not even, not even worried about that. Evan Turner's performance and fit, I think, is more of a concern. Although if you think about it now, what would you rather have Chandler Parsons, who's out for the season for the same amount of money or maybe more, not doing anything? Or would you rather have Evan Turner, who's had a struggle for the first 20 games of the season or so, and uh, settle into a spot before getting ultimately getting injured for you know a short amount of time? I don't know. I think the Blazers got sort of handcuffed as, as they do to the market and then that's that's really where the the issue is for the Blazers. It's typically to the market. So where Olshay has really found his value is being able to trade players, which again one of the reasons why he matched Allen Crab. So I don't necessarily think that uh, like they're not going to hit the luxury tax. Not with the, not with the teams is the way it's constructed. Certainly, maybe maybe after uh, re-signing Nurkic or something, but um, they're not going to hit it with the the players and and the value you see on the on the team right now. They're not going to hit it with those guys. So. I don't think I'm necessarily worried about that. Overall, evaluating Olshay as a GM is tough because he has made some really good trades. I mean, the the two that have impressed me the most, I think, the Nick Batum trade aside, that's like maybe not great. I don't know. But there's some contextual stuff there with Nick that maybe he just needed to be somewhere else to thrive. But, you know, the trading for Robin Lopez for Jeff Withey, that was an absolute steal and honestly, maybe really uh, helped Robin Lopez's career in terms of his future potential earnings, pairing in with those guys to really be able to do what he can do and play big minutes. But the other one I like is the Nurkic trade, specifically because the guy I thought on this roster this season was pretty much immovable was Mason Plumley, And that's because he's in the last year of his rookie deal, so he had a very low salary figure. So it's like, okay, well, then you have to look at teams that the Blazers necessarily don't want to bring a lot of money back. Same thing with that's, you know, Nurkic contract is pretty much the same, but he, he got a pick back while only sending a second round pick to the nuggets and Mason Plumlee for as useful as he was to the Blazers offense. That was always because of the necessity because the Blazers don't have a third guy. Now Mason Plumlee, excellent high post passer and, and really had some highlight passes, but the guy couldn't shoot a basketball outside of six feet. I mean, it's embarrassing. And that doesn't work for this offense, not in any way, shape, or form. I, I, don't, I don't honestly know where Mason Plumlee does fit on an NBA offense. I don't know. I don't think he's a starter for a playoff basketball team. I just don't. But in any case, so I thought it was like, look, he has a, he has a small contract. He's going to be hard to trade. He doesn't have a lot of value. He only has one NBA skill. He can't really defend that well. He doesn't box out for others. He doesn't rebound for himself. And he doesn't have a back-to-the-basket game. He can't shoot the basketball. So who are you going to trade him for? And all of a sudden, the Blazers traded him for a franchise center. I'm blown away by that. I really am. Now, again, all that has to really do with is a lot of times the NBA trades end up being weird because of the situation guys are in. Why Why did the Blazers get Nurkic? Because things had gone so sour with him there, and they had a franchise center of their own. 
great news. So you have to wait for that opportunity. So I think that's a really great trade for him. One that I did not expect, one that I did not see coming. I think those are great moves. Overall, I think I'm still on the Neil O'Shea train. I think he's not going to end up putting the team over the luxury tax with the roster they have now. And there's still moves to be made, specifically with three first round picks, Alan Crabb on the roster. Evan Turner, I think, is the the rumor in Portland is that Evan Turner was a potentially a ownership move. Not necessarily as selecting him as a player, but selecting look like we need you to sign a guy to help Damian CJ. You have to go to the next one on your list, and Evan Turner was it. Why Evan Turner got paid so much, I don't know. I I still think that Evan Turner is like a forty million dollar player, not a seventy million dollar player. So I don't really know why it was so much. That's definitely sort of a conundrum. But the moves around that that have put the Blazers where they need to be, I think really makes sense. I mean, and we're also skipping over the fact that Alfred Camino gets paid like $9 million and it goes down for the next two years. Somehow he makes less money in the next two years, even though he's like 25 or 26 and is a exceptional defensive player for them. So taking a look at it on the whole, I'm really not too concerned about Neil Shea's track record. I think he's still done very well and I don't see him as really putting the blazes in a, in a bad position, but I do think that this summer is he has to make his big trade this summer. He's never going to have more assets than he has now. He has all three of those picks and all these guys to move on the roster. And he has Nurkic now, so he needs to get that fourth guy. He has to make his move now. He can't wait. So if he doesn't do that, then we can maybe start eyeing him a little bit. But I think he's I think he's doing just fine. Yeah, so you led right into my next question, which is, so the Blazers do have all those assets, three first-round draft picks. They have that contract for Alan Crabb that he got last offseason. Other contracts on the books, maybe Evan Turner, Mo Harkless, guys like that. So what do you think are their targets for this summer, either upgrading at forward, getting that fourth guy, as you said, and how can they package those assets together to get that? Oh, that's really tough. I feel like I've I've tried to do that a little bit. And my answer, I think, is... I'm not trying to be a cop out, but it is the the Nurkic thing is such a good example of how trades work on the NBA because we all sit here on Twitter, right? We look at uh, trades people put up and it's going to get torn apart. Oh my God, that never happened. Oh my God, I can't believe that. And then Nick Batum gets traded for Noah Vonley. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? And Nick Batum has a career year after he gets traded. It's like, those two things don't make sense. Or or the trade for DeMarcus Cousins from Sacramento to uh, New Orleans. Like, if somebody had pitched that trade on Twitter three weeks before, they would have got ripped apart. And then what actually happened? So NBA trades end up being, a lot of times, I think, a lot weirder than we think they're going to be. And that's specifically because of the... It's it's more about context than anything. It's about the context of what's happening with those teams. The context of DeMarcus Cousins wearing out his welcome in Sacramento. Sacramento finally wanted to move away from him. It's the context of Yusuf Nurkic being kind of mopey in Denver and Denver already having Jokic. It's it's all the it's the context that makes the most sense. To so it's hard for me to pick because those things are more intrapersonal items or intra you know managerial items that the public even as a as somebody who covers the NBA for a living, doesn't have as much insight into as a you know as opposed to we look at simple fit statistics, assets, liquidity, things like that. So 
it's hard for me to make a pick like that. And I also don't, there hasn't been a lot of um, movement, I think, in terms of information from Neil O'Shea about what he wants. He moved Al Farouk Aminu permanently in either in exit interviews last year or pre-training camp or I forget when it was, but he, but he, but he, you know, essentially said that Al Farouk Aminu is our starting four. We project like nine wins better this, this season with him at the four, you know, so he, he put them in that spot. And Neil Shave, one of his weaknesses is he's a little attached to players. He's very attached to CJ. I think he might be a little attached to Aminu. I believe he drafted him in LA. So in any case, I think the two spots they need are obviously small forward and power forward. That's very obvious. They have Al Farouk Aminu on a dynamite contract. They have Noah Vonley, who I think the Blazers believe is their power forward of the future future you know not for a little while but i think they believe he is one so i think the what makes the most sense is the wing and so small forward position it would have been nice if mo harkless took an even greater leap from last year but he's just not he's just not that guy and he's not you know he's just a, a young dude so in terms of targets you know it's like i was joking earlier in the season you know who's the perfect target for the trailblazers would be nick batum like if you stuck him on this roster, he would be the perfect complement at that position because he can shoot the lights out, he can handle the ball a little bit, and he can defend. And he's a veteran presence who knows how to you know run off screens and and interact with those guys. So um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of funny a little bit that way. Yeah. So I don't have I don't have a good pick. I I try not to do that. I look around. You know, it's like oh maybe Jay Crowder or something. I, I I don't know. It's like you're, and then it's like oh who's who's the? And then you're looking at the second level guys. Like who's the second level guy ready to to make a leap to the next level to like be that starter? And I I don't know who it is. So the Blazers definitely need a shooter at that position. Absolutely need a shooter. Alfred Camino took a huge step back after having a well, what would be a uh, an average NBA season for a, a wing last year? Um, took a huge step back at three point shooting this year, and and really. As teams clamped down on Damian CJ, uh, really as got left as the open guy and shoots a lot of clunkers. So you do have some um, requirements, I think, for who you need. But that's me saying, oh, I think they need a wing. Uh, Olshay could be thinking something completely different. And you know, I'm st- I'm still not putting past Olshay to make some huge mega deal. Like mm-hmm. he trades Aminu and Harkless and those three picks and Alan Crabb as part of a three-way deal and gets a superstar back. I'm not putting that past him either. So I don't know what direction they're going to go in is my answer. We don't expect you to have all the answers, but you're at least pointing us in the right direction. So that's definitely helpful. <laughs> I don't want to harp too much on the defense, but it definitely is important. We talked about the guards' defensive deficiencies earlier. The team tied for 20th last season in defensive efficiency and came in at 21st this year. So around the same mark so through the first 30 games as you probably know the Blazers were last this season in defensive rating and Al Farouk Aminu missed 18 of those 30 games and all but four minutes of a 19th game terrible 111 defensive rating but then the final 52 games of the year where they went 28 and 24 They still didn't have a great defensive rating at 106, but that actually ranked ninth in the league. Is that just just a weird stat that I found? Or does Al Farouk Aminu really do make a difference defensively that can be overlooked sometimes? No, he really does. I think especially something that's underrated, I think everybody really gets on Aminu for being able to be, oh, he's this great individual defender and he can like body up Blake Griffin. And that's really impressive for his weight and height. But 
He's also a great, not just a team defender, but a help defender. Uh, you know, honestly, he might have been Portland's second best rim defender after Mason Plumley this year. I would say that's probably very true. I'd have to look at statistics specifically, but anecdotally from watching every single one of their games, a great contester, at least to be able to alter shots, if not, you know, not necessarily block them. So, I mean, it really does make that difference. He really does. If you think about what the NBA offense is, a lot of times, it's a lot of pick and roll and it's a lot of help and dig from the wings. And if guys are not ready to, dig from the strong side or help from the weak side, which is where Amini would find himself as playing his you know, defense on the wing. You're not always going to be the guy. And I think he really does make a difference, especially if you add in the idea that he can body up Blake Griffin. And and the flip side of that is playing guys like uh, Noah Vonley and Myers Leonard, who are uh, more foul prone and, l- and less defensively disciplined to be able to, to play against those major players just one-on-one. Just the final question before we let you go, and it's been a great discussion. We really enjoy having you on for the second time now. Two things I wanted to ask you, two-part question. One is, what is up with this Ian Clark guy just destroying this team? He's 27-41 to 41 from the field against the Blazers this year and has had a strong first two games of the series. And then the second thing is, I know you're a really big X's and O's guy, and uh, we really like the video series that you've done over the years. What are some go-to plays or sets that you think Portland could employ more to great success in this series? Uh, So the Ian Clark thing is weird. The Blazers, it's been like a running joke. I even had a tweet that was like, Early in the year, which is just shows you how uh, ubiquitous this problem is. But, uh, oh, no, looks like insert name of bench guard is destroying the Blazers once again. Yeah. You know, and like Ian Clark has done that. Like a, a bunch of dudes have done that this year to the Blazers. I don't know necessarily what that is. I think those probably come where CJ's where Damien comes out. CJ plays the point guard. Alan Crabb comes in. And Alan Crabb, for as long as he is and as touted as he will be and as as uh, hard as Neil O'Shea will push him as a defensive stalwart in uh, trade meetings. Alan Crabb gets lost a lot on defense, turns his head, kind of gets his head in the clouds a little bit. When he's one-on-one with a guy, he's not necessarily getting straight up beat. But guys like Ian Clark, obviously, you know, Warriors coming off of uh, two screens, you know, like a, some floppy set screen or something coming across the baseline, like Alan Crabb get lost. And all you, all you need, especially with the Warriors, is like hardly any daylight. That's how they shoot the ball as a team. Uh, with their guards. So it's not just Steph and Clay. So <laughs> what's going on with Ian Clark? It's like, you got me. I'm sure it's, uh, it's been something that Terry Stotts and his staff has been annoyed with pretty much all season long. In terms of their plays, the Blazers have switched up their offense a little bit this year since they don't have, before Nurkic, you know, they, they don't have a lot of punch and fist action where they would typically get like Lamarcus the ball on the, on the left wing, things like that. So they still run their flow offense, which is sort of the easy way to describe it would be like a three man weave at the top. A lot of handoff tosses and like flare screens to the side of the corners and pick and roll action from there. They've mixed in something I like a lot more this year and something they have used against the Warriors this year, which is great. And a lot of teams have actually used this against the Warriors as well. It's a little funny to see, but are split screens. And that is when a player comes up to set a screen for a player coming across him. And then instead of continuing on up, they actually cut down towards the basket because when players shift to guard the player coming off of the screen, the screener is then left with uh, an avenue towards the basket. And so it's sort of almost, it looks almost like a backdoor cut, but it's sort of almost like a, I would describe it as a front door cut. And I've done a, 
there was one I did on the, the how the Lakers beat the Warriors earlier this season by using split screens. If your listeners want to go to my YouTube channel, uh, check it out and watch it. Look for that video. It'll describe, it'll, it'll show exactly what I'm talking about. But the Blazers have mixed in split screens this year. Their offense is, at least from a visual standpoint, looks a lot like the Warriors. So they have a lot of the same type of screens and parts of their actions. They have mixed those in. It would be nice if they, if we saw some of those be more successful against the, the Warriors in this series. I would like to see that. And I think the inside out game, because you're having to guard against that, what happens is when you're, when those guys are splitting down, instead of playing over the top, you have to start guarding more towards the middle. And that allows your shooters to then, when those actions get run again, to have a little bit more space when they do eventually pop out to the wing to get that three. And obviously, the three ball is the thing that's going to help them beat the Warriors and the thing that the Blazers are best at. So mm-hmm. the, uh, having a little more split-screen success might be helpful. I'm not sure what else they can do. Other than that, they don't have a, a post-up presence. So that, that would be the thing I would hope to see them use a little more often to success, split-screens. Okay, we'll look out for that. Ideally, this interview would have been timed with the Blazers representing a real threat to some contender. Unfortunately, (laughs) that's not the case, but still, they got a good one in Nurkic, and I'm excited to see what they do in the offseason, some of the moves that you've teased that Olshay could make. Yeah, it should be interesting to see. I think this is a make-it-or-break-it offseason for the Portland Trail Blazers, for me personally. If they don't make... A big move. I think that they um, could be on finally on the road to have some real trouble with their roster and uh, maybe squandering Damien and CJ a little bit. I hope they don't do that. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, Dan. Good stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Stay tuned for more show. We're back with our second segment. Thanks for sticking with us. We're not even a week into the playoffs now, and already there have been several interesting comments and interactions between the players, coaches, and the media already. The first one I want to highlight in this segment are some comments made by Paul George after the Game 1 loss of the Pacers to the Cavaliers. He had some criticisms of the way Lance Stevenson and Miles Turner played during that game and also insinuated in the press conference that he, not teammate CJ Miles, should have been the one to take a potential game-winning shot that CJ Miles ended up missing, costing the Pacers the game. Aaron, I want to ask your opinion about when you think comments like George's cross the line between motivation for his teammates imploring them to do better and being unprofessional or unproductive to his teammates that's a good question i think it's definitely a delicate balance and the media can't have it both ways because oftentimes star players are criticized for not taking the final shot and not being demonstrative enough to demand that they get the ball in those situations George did that, and then he's getting flack from it, from the media, saying that he threw his teammates under the bus and stuff. Also, he's asked to be a leader, and clearly that's what he's trying to do. Now, you don't want to get to the point where you're criticizing your teammates, and it's having a negative effect on them, and you wouldn't want it to have the adverse effect of making them play worse. 
because as a leader, your goal is to lift up your teammates as opposed to tearing them down. But all indications are that Stevenson, Turner, and Miles are close with Paul George and that they're joking around in practice and that they're a cohesive unit that genuinely likes one another and that this really has been blown out of proportion. It's also a double standard in that someone like LeBron James, and I know he's treated differently than a lot of guys, but he would not have been criticized for being critical of his teammates to the extent that Paul George was. Paul George is younger and doesn't have, he's a superstar, but doesn't have the superstar status of LeBron James. So it's treated differently, and I don't think that's fair. I think the thing that has been the favorite development of the week for me was something that didn't even happen on the court, Lauren. It was the take that for data rant that David Fisdale, the Memphis Grizzlies head coach, went on after their game two loss at San Antonio where he was ranting about the free throw disparity and standing up essentially for Mike Conley Jr. and his teammates, given what he perceived as unfair treatment by the referees. Going to assume here that you don't think it was unprofessional by him or that he crossed the line. So I'll just go ahead and ask you, how cool was that moment and how worthwhile was that fine that I guess he's not going to be paying anyway? Yeah, I don't think it was unprofessional. I think this is the type of thing that you see time and time again from coaches when they need something to motivate their team. The Grizzlies are down 2-0 in this series. They got blown out both times. So this is Coach Fisdale trying to light a fire under his team. Now the players know that he's got their back and they're willing to foot the bill of that $30,000 fine that he's given after this rant. And the other thing is that I think after this, the referees are going to take a closer look at some of those chippy fouls that Fisdale feels like the Grizzlies deserved to be called for them and didn't get the whistle for sometimes. He brought up a lot of stats. Grizzlies dominated in terms of shots in the paint, but had much fewer fouls called for their team than the San Antonio Spurs. So it's that's just the dual goal of A, getting their players fired up again, and B, trying to influence at least the referees into seeing things back your way. Yeah, also Kawhi Leonard attempted more free throws than the entire Grizzlies team. So that was another stat that he cited. And before we move on, just want to say I love the passion. The man even banged on the podium. So his yeah, team definitely respects the hell out of that. Take that for data is already on t-shirts they're selling in Memphis. It's going to be something that's repeated for a lot of time to come. The next thing I want to go into are some comments by Dwayne Wade after the Bulls were able to take a 2-0 lead in the 8-1 one series against the Boston Celtics. He had this to say, we're a confident team, but you don't think you're going into Boston and getting two. Coming in, I didn't say, hey, we're going to be up 2-0 on Boston. No one thought that, but we're in this position and we've earned it. What's your reaction to that? It's honest by Dwayne Wade. I don't think it's that bold or surprising of a quote, but I think a lot of star players wouldn't be brave enough to say that, that essentially... 
that he was surprised that they're up to nothing because as a star player um, at the highest level, you try to um, give off confidence and he's admitting that he didn't expect that to happen. Now, obviously they're the eighth seed. It's on the road in Boston, even though Boston had a weak record as far, historically speaking, as far as number one seeds are concerned. And Chicago has some stars with playoff experience on their roster. It's still, it's still somewhat surprising. I just, I think it's refreshing that he admitted that. And it, it's kind of true when you think about it, even though obviously Chicago gave maximal effort in that second game. If they lost the second game, they still had stolen home court advantage until losing the first game in Chicago. So they wouldn't have been in a bad position if they went back to Chicago tied at one game apiece. So, I mean, I think just an honest quote from a guy who usually is pretty honest with the media, I think. Yeah. So closing out the series that I'm following the closest Utah Jazz, Los Angeles Clippers, there was an interesting exchange. So, like us, Bleacher Report's Eric Pincus is also a member of the Almighty Baller Network. I just wanted to provide that full disclosure first. So, after that game one of the series, he asked Doc Rivers in the post-game press conference a question that definitely ruffled some feathers. Now... The Clippers ended up losing on the Joe Johnson buzzer beater that Saturday night. And Chris Paul had tied the game with about 13 seconds left on a two-point shot. The shot clock was turned off. And Eric Pincus' question to Doc Rivers was about the strategy of why Chris Paul didn't hold the ball for the last shot. But they were down two. So it was um, an interesting question from Eric Pincus. And this is what Doc Rivers responded incredulously. Who would do that? Like, why would you ever do that? So if you miss, the game's over? That makes no sense. No, no. That is like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Now, when you're down two, you try to score. You don't wait. No, you score. If you can score in one second, you score. Lauren, what's your reaction? And please don't tell me that this is the dumbest question you've ever heard. No, no. Um, Well, first of all, Strategically, I do agree with Doc Rivers. I think there's no, you should, in that situation, you don't wait to make your move. I think you take the best shot that's first available to you and also give yourself a chance in case you don't make that shot to either get the offensive rebound and get another good possession or foul and still have enough time left. That said, I do think it was a little bit of an overreaction to Doc in terms of his reaction to Pincus's question. When journalists are asking these types of questions in a press conference, it's not necessarily that they're questioning the decision by the head coach. It's more like you want to pick their brains as to why they employ certain strategies in certain game situations so that you can write your article around it and explain it to a layperson. So I believe that's where Eric Pincus is coming from in asking this type of question, just trying to get Doc Rivers' perspective on a late game situation and how he played it. You explained that really well. And that's something that didn't occur to me at first, but 
it makes a lot of sense as a possibility. As a journalist, you're trying to get quotes. And as you said, you said layperson, just to anyone reading the article who may have questioned it, him or herself, or just doesn't understand why you don't wait to score. He's getting those quotes to provide color and rationale. It's not necessarily that Eric Pincus himself disagreed with the strategy or found it curious. I want to say also that I completely agree with you and Doc Rivers. No coach in their right mind would do that, would would wait when you're trailing by two. And basically, it's pretty obvious. All you have to really say is your margin for error is basically is slim to none if you wait until the three or five second mark because there's almost no time for an offensive rebound or if you miss there's no time to foul and then get the ball back up court and take a decent shot at a buzzer beater so doc rivers made the right move now there were a ton of other things that were messed up like why Luke Bahamute was not in the game. They had Reddick and Crawford in there. And then Crawford, who's old and never a good defender anyway, was isolated on Joe Johnson after a screen, and Blake Griffin didn't run at him. I think that that was inexcusable. He was sticking by Joe Ingles, who's a 40-plus percent three-point shooter, and that makes sense. But once it got under about four seconds, there wouldn't have been time really for Joe Johnson to pass to Ingles and Iso Joe, that's his nickname. He always has that mindset to shoot at the end of games. So I think Griffin, and it's easier for me to say, but Griffin should have ran at Joe Johnson and left Joe Ingles alone. Yeah, that's my rant. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as you said, there are a lot of things that went wrong in that game for the Clippers that don't have to do with that late game Chris Paul shot in terms of strategy. So there are other things to attack there, but I think that's where we'll close our show. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed us. You can find us every week on dash radio on the almighty baller network. And you can find our episodes in podcast form on almightyballer.com, on the NBA beat.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>